2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. And mark that because it's going to be important for you. So he arose and he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And when Absalom went, 200 men invited him from Jerusalem. And they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite. David's counselor from his city, from Giloah, while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him. And all the Carathites or Cherethites, all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Then the king said to Atei, the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. For you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Atei answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives. Surely... In whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, 
even there also your servant will be. So David said to Atai, go and cross over. Then Atai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also and all and the Levites with him bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God and Abiathar went up until the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok. Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you. Here I am and let him do to me as it seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you. Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, see, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was with your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not know that Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city. And Absalom came into Jerusalem. The consequences of David's sin has now finally come back to haunt him. At home, he was shattered. In the court, he had lost respect and authority as a leader. And you'll recall David committed adultery with Bathsheba and rape came into David's household. His oldest son, Amnon, sexually assaulted his half-sister, Tamar. David... Um, had murdered Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, and Absalom murders Amnon for his horrible crime against his sister. And in chapter 13, verse 21, you'll remember we read about David's anger, but his lack of action, and then the memory of his own sins begin to haunt him. 
but the truth is he hasn't disciplined his children. Has that ever happened to you? Your own sins begin to haunt you, and so you don't know exactly. If you live in the kind of world that I grew up in, well, at least they haven't done as bad as I did. But that's no way to raise your children. Your children can't be raised based on your best behavior or your worst failure. Your children have to be raised based on the revelation of God that's given in Christ. Absalom fled to his father's, his grandfather's palace. David's general Joab tricked David into allowing Absalom to return to the royal city. When we come to the end of the last chapter, David and Absalom appeared to have kissed and made up. But Absalom wasted no time in building a loyal group of followers. My friend Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, he openly criticized his father's administration and he secretly stole the hearts of the people, unquote. That's exactly right. Times of rebellion, those are times of revelation, aren't they? The times of rebellion are times of revelation. You see people, what really You see what people really believe and where they stand. In those times of rebellion, the heart is revealed and the agenda is made manifest. And the chapter begins with a rejected king. And then it continues with the rebellion of the prince. And then it ends with the reaction of the people. I'm sure that each and every one of you have heard the expression. A friend in need is a friend. That's right. A friend in need is a friend indeed. And David is in trouble. He's in big trouble. You know, Christianity isn't a religion of lone rangers. We may think it is a sign of strength and self-sufficiency when you don't need anyone, but that's not true. David is going to come to a devastating, empty collapse. And David's friends are going to come to his rescue. Even though David in part is suffering the consequences of the bad choices that he's made from the past, his friends still show up. It was C. Raymond Baran who said, quote, A friend is someone who understands your past, believes in your future, and accepts you today just the way you are. A friend is someone with whom you dare to be yourself, unquote. My father used to say, you know who a friend is? A friend will help you move the body. I go, thanks, Dad. Thanks for sharing that with me. Samuel Taylor Coolridge described friendship as a sheltering tree. A friend is a gift that you give yourself. And Jesus had close circle of friends. Friends are not just for now. Friends are for later. And so in verse 1 it says, When David After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. I'm going to read the first six verses. Now, Absalom would rise early 
and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was when, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king or a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from, friend? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land. And everyone who who has any suit or any cause would come to me that I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone would come near to bow to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In other words, in the ancient culture, when you met the king or the king's children, the crown prince, you bow. But what Absalom would do is as they went to bow, he would grab their hand and he would pull the person close to them and he would kiss them. Because you see, he's accessible. He's available unlike his father. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. His rebellion begins and blossoms in the pain of David, in the wreckage of David. And you have to understand something. He is the crown prince and he acts like the heir. He has put together his royal entourage. And so when it says that he provided for himself chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him, you have to understand that what he is doing is he's acting like a king. A chariot was like the equivalent of a tank or a stretch limo. Imagine you have your whole entourage with 50 people running before you and again he is acting like a king but for him remember image is everything in order to capture the hearts of the people he wants to look like a king and act like a king he wants to have all of the trappings of a king in Texas they have a saying the the saying goes that man is all hat and no ranch You may not know what that means, but you may look like a rancher and you may dress like a rancher and you may have a big hat like a rancher, but you don't really have a ranch. And he looks like a king and he acts like a king and he has all of the accompaniment of a king. It's not wrong to have a goal, but it is wrong to try to achieve that goal through lying and treachery. And Absalom will win the people's heart through lies and through innuendos. He's in effect saying, nobody at the palace really cares for you the way that I care for you. Absalom declares his ambitions to be a judge like Samuel. In other words, let's just for a moment pretend to put ourselves in Absalom's place and say, hey, you know what? People can't get justice in this administration. They can't get justice in the administration. If you want to see, if you want to see who's in jail, just look, it's just us. Kings in the ancient world served double duty. Kings would not only be the ruler, but sometimes they would be the Supreme Court as well. 
And so it says, when Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, this is the plaintiff of judgment. So it was whenever anyone had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, hey, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a city. In other words, all of the tribes of Israel are coming to the capital of Jerusalem in order to receive justice in verse 3. Then Absalom would say, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy to hear the case. Here's what he did. He stirs up dissatisfaction with David's government and campaigns against David by promising to provide justice that David, at least in his way of thinking, denied the people. And the same smooth talk takes place everywhere around us. It happens in churches. It happens on the job. It happens in the world. Have you ever been on a job and somebody marches into the room and says, who's the boss? And sometimes you might say, I'm the boss. But imagine somebody walks into the room and says, I want to speak to the smartest person here. Is that always the boss? No. No. Men who will make you believe that they love you more than your husband. And women who make you think that they understand your needs. People in the workplace who try to usurp authority. The the list could go on and on and on. Typically, you have the reality that we live in a hierarchy where there are people in charge. And there are people who follow the people in charge. And everybody thinks that they always know what's best. Everybody wants to be in charge, but no one wants to have to accept the consequences of being in charge. Absalom wants the world to see he's not just another pretty face. Even though he has long, flowing hair, even though he's the most attractive person you've ever seen, he has wisdom, he has knowledge, he has charm, he has charisma. And Absalom's plan works. He has the image, he promises justice. When people come to him, instead of bowing down, he puts out his hand and kisses him. That means he's approachable. He's he's really a regular person. But is he? Is he a regular person? Because he's acted like he's above the law. He's killed his brother. Absalom is handsome. He's connected. He's gone to all the right schools. He has the political instincts. He understands how image-oriented people are. And he understands something else. That more people want image than they want substance. And so in verse 6 it says, In this manner he acted toward all Israel. Absalom acted who came to the king for judgment, so he stole the hearts. Now think about it. My friend David Gusick writes, A series of things. He carefully cultivated an exciting, enticing image. Chariots, horses, 50 men. He worked hard. Look at the text. He would rise early. He knew where to position himself. He was exactly at the gate in the morning. He looked out for troubled people, anyone who had a lawsuit. He reached out to troubled people. He would call out to them. He took a personal interest in troubled people. Hey, what city are you from? He sympathized with the person. Your case is good and right. He never attacked David directly. This is important. No deputy of the king to hear you. He left the troubled person more troubled. No deputy of the king to hear you. 
Without directly attacking David, Absalom promised to do better. Oh, that I were made the judge, and everyone who has a suit or a cause would come to me, and then I would give him justice. Gusick writes, and I like this quote, Absalom's clever approach made him able to subvert and divide David's kingdom without saying any specific thing that could condemn him. If anyone objected, Absalom would simply say, hey, tell me one specific thing that I've said or done. In fact, Absalom would do all this and say, look, I'm helping David to deal with all this discontent while Absalom is in fact promoting discontent. And that's what a divisive person always does. They say that they're dealing with discontent. You know what? I can honestly say, I've never met a divisive person who would admit that they're divisive. I'm not being divisive. I'm being sensitive. I'm being supportive. I'm being this. I'm being that. David will go down in history as Israel's greatest king. But how does the greatest king get into a situation like this? In other words, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Which king in the history of Israel was greater than David? Which king was more charismatic, more charming? Which king had a greater access to the powerful things about God? But think about this. Israel is dissatisfied. They want a charismatic, charming, self-serving person who values image over substance. And what do you see? The whole crowds begin to follow Absalom. And so in verse 7, when it says, now it came to pass after 40 years. Now we don't know if this is a scribal error, if this is 40 years. If it could be, it could be after 40 years, it means that when Absalom reached the age of 40, if in fact... The word here is 40. I'm going to suggest to you that it probably means Absalom on his 40th birthday. Or if it's four years, then it means it's four years after he's come back from Jeshur. Remember, he spent time in Jerusalem. He finally gets to see his father's face. And after seeing his father's face, there's still no, no resolution to this impasse that they have. To be honest with you, I don't know which is correct. I spent way too much time over this little nuance and, and got consumed instead of actually looking at the text, which is way more important. And then because the next part is really the most important part, where it says that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Ebron. Now, Ebron was one of those capital cities that was very, very important in the history of Israel and pay the vow which I have made to the Lord. In other words, he says in verse eight, your servant took a vow while I was in Jeshur and Syria saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. In other words, here's what he's saying to his father. He's saying to his father, in my time of rebellion and disobedience and detachment from you, I promise that if God would ever make it right, I would love him and I would serve him and I would obey him and I would worship him. You know what is most sinister about this statement? He is using worship as a pretense for rebellion. 
He's using worship as a pretense for rebellion. I am going to go and I am going to serve the Lord. I am going to worship the Lord. Now, again, I am going to, I understand something about rationalization. Do you know what a rationalization is? It's a plausible but untrue excuse why we do what we do. Is it possible that Absalom, in his own mind, as he goes to Hebron, he thinks he's doing God a favor and he thinks that he's doing Israel a favor? He thinks that, Dad, he has, he has taken a woman, he has killed a man, he is completely out of touch, he is completely disconnected with the needs of Israel and the needs of the people and justice and all of that other stuff and he actually thinks that this is what God would have him to do. You know, the same is exactly true in churches. It's the same as exactly true in men's groups, women's groups, youth groups where a person thinks that they're doing a favor by usurping the authority and the leadership in any given circumstances. I could do a better job. I'll be a better pastor. I'll be a better worker. I'll be a better server. And in verse 8, he uses the pretext of worship. And remember what I said in, about verse 9? And the king said to him, Go in peace. Why do you suppose this is going to be an important thing? It's going to be important later on. And the reason why it's going to be important later on is these are the last words that a father will say to his son. David and Absalom will never have another conversation. They'll never have another face-to-face -face conversation. The last words that David will say to his own son is go in peace. So he arose and he went to Hebron. And now think about it. In verse 10, then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel. This is from Dan all the way to the north to Beersheba all the way to the south. As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. Is this, is this treason? Is this rebellion? Or is this succession? In his mind, it's succession. But Absalom now believes that he is strong enough to risk open rebellion against his father. And in verses 11 and 12, he says, And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Here's what you have to understand. Absalom extends an invitation to 200 prominent people, the movers and shakers within the government and culture of Israel. They leave Jerusalem. They find themselves in Hebron. When the rebellion takes place, they have no idea that Absalom is going to declare himself to be the king. But they're going to be forced to make a decision, aren't they? even though it begins innocently enough. And by the way, that's the way rebellion usually begins and continues. Whether it's in a church or whether it's in a home or whether it's in a community or whether it's in a government, there are two kinds of people. Those who are in the know and those who are clueless. They have no idea that someone's mounting a coup. 
And then in verse 11, it says, and went, with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently, and they didn't know anything. But one did. In verse 12, then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from um, Giloah, while he offered sacrifices. In other words, while he was worshiping, and the conspiracy grew strong. And that's the way conspiracies usually both begin and continue. They have a life of their own. They have a momentum of their own. They grow and they continue to grow. For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And so it catches a wave, if you will. And the reason why he is enlisting Ahithophel, this is going to also be important as the story unfolds. Ahithophel is David's trusted advisor. But you know who else he is? He's the grandfather to Bathsheba. Do you think there's some bitterness? Do you think there's some anger? Do you think that there's some resentment? Do you think that there is some comeuppance? Here's what you have to understand. The people who can hurt you the most are also the people who can help you the most. Isn't that interesting? The people who can hurt you the most are the people who can help you the most. A family or a church cannot split unless someone is trusted. The people who can do the most damage to your ministry are also the people who can do the most good. And Ahithophel is known for his wisdom, for his advice, for his counsel. There's a reason why he's the chief of staff, if you will, or he's the chief advisor to the king. It's because he literally does have a clue and a way to proceed in wisdom. And it says in verse 13, Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men in Israel are with Absalom. So David said to his servants, who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Think about this for just a moment. David knows something about his son. He wasn't willing to admit it earlier. But he knew that once his son came into power, he would do everything necessary to consolidate that power And preserve that power. And David basically says, make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David orders his servants to flee the city. Good advice or bad advice? What do you think? I think it's good advice, and let me tell you why. David isn't strong enough to hold off an attack. Look what it says. The hearts of the people are with Absalom. When you read that particular passage of scripture, you know what I would encourage you to do? I would ask you to ask this question. Why are the hearts of the people with Absalom? Think about this for just a moment. Why? Why is this? How? Think carefully for a moment. How did David lose their hearts? Hypocrisy, inconsistency, sin. Let me ask you a question. Do you think hypocrisy, inconsistency, and sin puts a strain on a relationship? Do you think hypocrisy, inconsistency, and sin hurts a marriage? 
Do you think hypocrisy, inconsistency, and sin hurts a church? Do you think hypocrisy, inconsistency, and sin hurts a nation? Does it put a strain when you're trying desperately to preserve leadership? David has lost the love of the people. He's betrayed by his own son. And David is at one of the lowest points in his life. So what could be another reason that he lost their hearts? Is it because Absalom is young and he is old? Is it because of his age? Is it because of his sin? Is it because people just like change? Is it because Absalom is exciting? I mean, he has Fabio hair and perfect features. He is friendly and accessible. He's skilled and cunning. Or is it because David, like his future famous son, is going to have to experience a period of rejection and suffering. You know what? What's the difference between David and David's son? Do you think it's safe to say that David, in part, may have lost the hearts of the people because there was some hypocrisy, there was some inconsistency, there was some sin? In other words, is David really suffering the consequences of his own wicked decisions? What do you think the answer is? I think that there's a certain element of that. When Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders and forced out of ministry, has Jesus done anything wrong? Is Jesus guilty of hypocrisy or sin or inconsistency? No. But what, what both King David and King Jesus will both have in common is a ministry of suffering and rejection. You know, there's always two kings vying for occupation of the throne of your heart. There's the former king or queen who used to be in charge of your life. And then there is King Jesus. When you decided to invite Jesus into your life, when you believed the gospel, when you decided that you were going to be a faithful follower of King Jesus, was there ever a time of usurpation in your own heart where voices said to you, you don't want to follow Jesus. You don't want to obey Jesus. You don't want to do what Jesus wants you to do. David is on a journey. David has truly, legitimately done some wicked things. But God is still at work in David's heart and in David's life and in David's ministry. And he is going to now enter into the fellowship of rejection and suffering. Once again, an old commentator from hundreds of years ago, uh, Clark writes, quote, Behold a king! The greatest that ever lived, a profound politician, an able general, a brave soldier, a poet of the most sublime genius and character, a prophet of the most high God, a deliverer of his country, driven from the, his dominions by his own son, abandoned by a fickle people, unquote. Same was true of Israel and Jesus, huh? Sinless. Loving, gracious, kind, 
humble. And the people of Israel said, we don't want him for our king. If ever David needed a friend, it was now. I want you to picture the scene. The once great king of Israel, the slayer of giants, is about to become a refugee. When he leaves the palace, he leaves with only the things that he can carry. And David's been here before. He knows what it's like to be a refugee. You know, David might have thought, I'm way, I'm way too old for this kind of drama. I mean, it's one thing to be prancing around the desert when you're young. But I'm too old to start all over again. You know, when he was running from Saul, he was still kind of young. And by that I mean he was still just a little bit south of 30, but he was headed in that direction. And in verse 15 it says, And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. It's a gentle reminder of his own wickedness and his own unhealthy preoccupation with sensuality and pleasure, and it's going to cost him later on. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. David is leaving the city of what? It's Jerusalem. It's the city of David. But now it's named after him. David is leaving the city that's named after him. Who started the ministry in Jerusalem? David. He started the ministry, he built the ministry, he promoted the ministry, he cultivated the ministry, he expanded the ministry. And now he comes to the edge of town. He comes to the brook Kidron. For those of you who have been to Israel with me, you know how the Temple Mount is on a particular place on Mount Moriah. And there below the valley is the valley of Kidron. This is the little stream that used to run right at the base of the mountain. This is the exact same stream that a thousand years into the future, Jesus would cross as he's rejected, as he leaves the city of Jerusalem, as he passes over the brook, as he goes to the Mount of Olives, as he prays on the side of the mountain. Two kings rejected, two kings walking past Kidron. Both going because they're rejected. David stares back at the town and the memories. When you suffer and you're rejected, if you've ever had to give up something that you really, really wanted to keep, have you ever looked at it and thought, I wonder if I'm ever going to see this again? The people are pulling mules and horses. They're loaded down with the household treasures and supplies. They're running for their lives. And David comes to the last little house on the outskirts of the neighborhood, on the top of the hill. And who's going to be there for him? And the people who are with David said, I'll be there for you. 
David has little armor to protect him. He has a reputation on the decline. The lights are fading. The crowds are listening to a new voice. Who's going to be there for him? By the way, what happens when your reputation is gone? What happens when your ministry is gone? What happens when your radio ministry is gone? What happens when you start... When, when people start attending the church across the street or down the street or, or across the town, what happens when people flee? Because there's something a little more exciting and a little more entertaining. It says, and the king went out with all the people after him and he stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Understand the, the vision. David pauses as the entourage goes by and the entourage is his personal guard. It's the palace guard, but these people are the people who have been with him ever since he was fleeing in the wilderness and look where the people are from. Cherethites, Pelethites, Gittites. Who are these people? When Chuck used to do it, Cherethites, Pelethites, Pepsi lights. <laughs> Who are these people? They're foreigners. Gittites were from Gath. Do you remember where Gath is? What's Goliath's hometown? Gath. Gath is a Philistine stronghold. Now think about this for just a moment. Family rejects him. People reject him. His friends are the people who used to be the unbelievers and the Philistines and the Gentiles who somehow followed him in his new preoccupation as the king. You know what? When you begin ministry, the people you begin with are rarely the people you end with. This is a testimony to David in and of itself. David still has friends left. And in verse 19, we're, we're, we're told just this very little thing about this guy named Etai. Then the king said to Etai the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. Now this is important on so many different levels. If there's a rebellion, his own people could turn against him and literally wipe the rebellion out in a moment. David has only a little protection. Itai the Gittite is apparently the commander of the Gentile peoples who were enlisted in David's service. And so David's first friend is a military guy. This is the first time we hear about him. And he's never in the limelight. But when the chips are down, he shows up. David, count me in. This was a guy, again, who had formerly been an enemy of David and an ally of Goliath. How low is it when your own kids turn against you and the greatest support comes from the people who used to be your enemy? And so when David's back is against the wall, Atei shows up and you'll note something about him that I think becomes very, very important. His response, the response is, return with the king. Who's that? 
It's David in his humility, in his shattered circumstances. He's talking about Absalom. Return and remain with the king. In David's mind, he's already made the transition that he's not the king. And that his son is going to be the king. And he says, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In other words, why, look. <laughs> David is in effect saying again another Texas thing. I'm snake bit. When you're snake bit, it means you're not going to make it. You're not going to survive the trail. I'm snake bit. I'm not going to make it. I'm, I am going down for the count. It's probably a very bad idea for you to follow me under these circumstances. In fact, <laughs> return. You're in exile. You came yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Atei answers the king immediately. As the Lord lives, he makes an appeal to his relationship with the true and living God of Israel. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives. And notice how many times he says king. As my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be. And whether in death or life, even there your servant will be. You're, he's not the king. You're the king. You're the king. His decision is immediate. His decision is irreversible. He is willing to come to a place where he says... Where you go, I go. If you live, I live. If you die, I die. Remember what we sang earlier? Though none go with me, still I will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. You may have only been a Christian for a month or a year. Five years or ten years. Some of you 20 years. Some of you 30 years. Some of you 50 years. But you're willing to follow Jesus because he's the true king. He is God's king. He is the rightful heir to the throne. It is Jesus who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And it seems incredible to me that people will abandon him for any reason or no reason at all. He's never in the limelight, Itai, but he comes and he decides to identify himself with David. Chuck Swindoll writes about Itai and his response in the passage. Swindoll says, quote, David, if they string you up, I'm putting my neck in the noose next to yours. If the whole world turns against you, I'll stand in your defense, unquote. Don't those words sound familiar? It's the same words that Peter said to Jesus in the same garden of Gethsemane. If everybody else abandons you, I won't abandon you. What's the difference between Atei and Peter? The difference is Atei really meant it and is willing to follow through. Unlike Peter in the future, Atei will make good on his promise. He takes his men to follow a man to no man's land. I have no idea where I'm going. Hey, guess what? That's where I'm going too. I'm going where I don't know with you. 
Don't you think it's better to follow Jesus to an unknown place than to follow anyone else to a known place? With no promise of success, in all likelihood the promise that Absalom will hunt them down and kill them. He goes, guess what? I'm still going with you. If you came to Jesus because you thought that he would fix your marriage, if you came to Jesus because you thought he would make you rich, if you came to Jesus because you thought he would make your hair grow back, you came for all the wrong reasons. Jesus doesn't promise that your hair will grow back. Jesus doesn't promise to make you rich. Jesus doesn't promise to fix your marriage. Jesus doesn't promise to to do those kinds of things. But here's what Jesus does promise. He promises to forgive your sin and to reconcile you to the Father and to give you the grace and the mercy and the assurance and the love and the companionship that you will need to survive the circumstances that you find yourself in. (laughs) Again, Swindoll writes, quote, when everything else fails and everybody else turns away, there are precious few who will give you a call and say, I'm the one with you. Count me in. Call on me at any time, day or night. I will come. I won't kick you when you're down. I'm on your side. The amazing thing is that sometimes the person who stands that near is a guy from Gath. A person who was once an enemy, but now they're a friend. Wow, I never thought that the people from the old life and the old world and the old circumstances would be the one who would stand by me when I needed them the most. In verse 23, it says, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over the way of the wilderness. In verse 24, it says, There was Zadok also, he's the high priest, and all the Levites, those are the priests, with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And remember, they're bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And what is the Ark of the Covenant of God? It is the thing that was fabricated in the wilderness that represented the presence of God to the people of God. When da- but David refuses to make the same mistake that Eli's sons made earlier in 1 Samuel of carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the living God, into battle. That took place, for those of you who've been with me, from 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. He orders the priests to stay in Jerusalem. Zadok and Abiathar at first starts to follow David. David decides to trust the Lord. This is part of the point. The king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. You have to understand something. David isn't carrying the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, with him as some sort of religious symbol or good luck charm. That's the point. He understands that this isn't a lucky battle charm. He 
is trusting the Lord. David is trusting that it is the Lord who's going to give him the victory. But think about the brokenness and the humility. Again, the brokenness and the humility, the rejection and the suffering, it isn't quite over. Two more things are going to take place in David's life. Is he's, here's what he's, he's saying. And look what the text is saying. I'm willing to accept the consequences of what God wants for me in the circumstance that I find myself in. And if God wants my son to be the king, he's going to be the king. If God wants me to be the king, then I will be the king. I am willing to accept the consequences of God's will for my life. You know what? That's the statement of a broken person who's submitted to God. Two more trees in David's life. These are guys in the ministry. Zadok and Abiathar. They come carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Again, which represents the presence of God. They put down the golden box. They put down the sacred box. And they ask David, where are we going? Because we're with you. But David says, you're going back. What do you do when your sin finally catches up with you? I want to pause for just a moment. What do you do when your sin finally catches up with you? David says, I am willing to accept the consequences of whatever God has for me. That's number one. Number two, he has a humble and a teachable spirit. David has a humble and a teachable spirit. In what way? David is in effect saying, Lord, if you have chosen to end my career, then my career is over. If you want to use me, praise God. I will make myself available to you. But whatever happens, Lord, my future is in your hands. And his obedience reveals what you keep hearing over and over again. As you look at the life of David, he is a man after God's own heart. So what's the difference? A man after God's own heart will say, I've done something terrible. And I've done something horrible. But now I am willing to accept the consequences of whatever God has for me. David knows that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't belong to him. The Ark is not some good luck charm to ensure his remaining on the throne. He doesn't say, hey, look, I'm going to take the presence of God with me. Out of sheer respect, David orders the Ark back to Jerusalem, one Bible writer says, quote, David reveals a true understanding of the connection between the ark and God's presence with his people. He knows the possession of the ark does not guarantee God's blessing. He also recognizes that the ark belongs in the capital city as a symbol of the Lord's right to rule over the nation. No matter who the king is, David confesses that he has no exclusive claim to the throne and that Israel's divine king is free to confer the kingship on whoever he chooses. This is David's point of humility and suffering and rejection where he's saying, I'm, I was never really the king. The Lord has always been the king. The only way that I get to in any way serve in any capacity of leadership is if the Lord allows me to do so. 
Jesus has always been the king. Jesus will remain the king. Jesus will remain the king whether you submit or refuse to submit. Whether you obey or whether you disobey. Is that how you feel about your ministry? That you don't have the exclusive claim to the throne? Is that how you feel if someone else is blessed and if you're not? If someone else's youth group or church or ministry is bigger, better, more impacting, more exciting, is that how you feel if God raises up another pastor, another worship leader, another youth leader, another person to take your place? Is that how you feel? And look what it says. In verse 26, but if he says this, I have no delight in you. Here I am, and let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? In other words, connected to God. Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahamaz and your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. Basically, in verses 27 and 28, David says, Go back. Now, think about this. There's two sets of friends. Those that stay with David, are they his friends? Yes. And those that go back. Question. Are they his friends? What do you suppose the answer is? Yes. Remember, the friendship isn't based on a willingness to go or a willingness to remain. The friendship is based on the fact that it is David who says... I need you to come with me, but I need you to remain. Why? Because both are going to be able to help David. Zadok and Abiathar don't argue or resist. They're there to help David. Think about this for just a moment. The ones who go with him are there to help him. The ones that remain are there to help him. And so when Jesus says, I need you to come with me. Remember, it's to help him. And when Jesus says, I need you to remain in the circumstance that you find yourself in, you know, though none go with me, still I will follow. Remember when Jesus says to his own disciples, remember in, in, in Luke 9, he says, um, in, in Matthew, he says, they say, they say, where are you going? He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I am going to be killed. And in three days, I'm going to come back from the dead. And remember, he says, follow me. (laughs) What? What are you talking about? Follow you where? To Jerusalem. And what are we going to do once we get there? Well, I'm going to die. Well, what's going to happen to us? Well, it's going to be bad for you too. (laughs) But not forever. Sometimes we need friends who will just simply say, look, I'll do what you want I'm available. No one else may ever get to know them. The ministry may never become notable or global, but they're going to be a shield protecting you from the blast of your enemies and encouraging you by their presence. Some will stand in your corner, but some will be placed in circumstances that are going to ultimately be for your (laughs) well-being. And look what it says. 
So, he says in verse 28, See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, that's the top of the mountain, and wept as he went up and had his head covered and went barefoot. Now, again, this isn't some pity party. This isn't David going, I'm going to take off my shoes and I'm going to cover my head and I'm going to have a little pity party. I don't think that that's what's happening here. What's happening here is there's real humility and there's real brokenness. And it says, then someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Jesus had Judas. And David had Ahithophel. Both of them betray their king. You know what else they have in common? They're both going to kill themselves. You know, it's hard to live in the world in which we live without at least one person betraying you at least one time in your life. And Ahithophel is David's closest advisor. And so on the Mount of Olives, when David is praying the prayer, Lord... Turn his counsel into foolishness. You know why he's saying that? Because he normally gives very good counsel. And who is Shai? He's David's friend. And when he meets David in sackcloth and ashes, that becomes a sign of mourning. And by the way, Job covers himself in sackcloth and ashes when he lost everything. Whenever you see in the Bible a person covering themselves with sackcloth and ashes, it's sort of an Old Testament way of saying, I'm bankrupt and I have no resources of my own in order to handle the situation that I find myself in. And that's what's happening with Hushai. He basically says, now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God and he takes time to worship. And and see, that's an important little point right there in verse 32. Even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the rejection, even in the midst when he's on the run, even when he has been wiped out, guess what? He takes time and he worships God. There was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with robe torn and dust on his head. Then David said to him, if you go on with me, then you're going to become a burden to me. That's kind of brutal, isn't it? Ouch. Kind of harsh. In a moment of guarded honesty, David says, if you go with me, it's going to be a problem. (laughs) I need you back at the palace. I need you to pretend loyalty to my son. I need your eyes. I need your ears. But most of all, I need your wisdom back at the palace. Do you know what he's saying? And you're not going to understand until you read the next chapter. But what he's basically saying is, I need you to, to, I need some countermeasures here for you to undo the counsel of Ahithophel, but I also need your help. And this is the help that I need. I need you to try to the best of your ability to make sure that my son doesn't do something stupid. But has Absalom already done something stupid? Has he done something catastrophic? For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, is this going to end very, very badly for Absalom? 
But David is still the king, but he's also a father. And he's basically saying, I need you to counteract the poison that Ahithophel is going to place in my son's soul. David is a general, and David is a warrior, and even in defeat, he's making up a strategy. A whole lot of communication is going to be set up during this process. And he begins to lay out the way that they're going to be able to communicate. He basically says, if you go on with me, you're going to be a burden. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was with your father. So I will also be your servant. Then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? Therefore, it will be whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell Zadok and Abiathar the priests. In other words, he's setting up a mechanism of communication so that we can go forward. Indeed, they have there with them the two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city. Absalom comes in to Jerusalem. Suffering, pain, rejection. Most Christians, I, I wish I could say all Christians... But it's not true. Most Christians at some point in their life will enter into the fellowship of rejection and suffering. And if you think that that's not true, then just wait. But when you do enter into the ministry of rejection and suffering, here's the question I want to ask you. Who stands with you? Who stands with you? Who stands by you? George Washington said, Be courteous to all, but intimate with few. And let those few be well tried before you give them your confidence. True friendship is a plant of slow growth and must undergo and withstand the shocks of adversity. I would be doing you a terrible disservice if I said, don't trust anyone. But I would also be telling you a terrible disservice if I said trust everyone. No, be careful. Be careful who you trust. And one of the things that, that we're going to see as we continue our study in, the, in, in David's adventures is how you go forward when you're no longer the insider but the outsider. You see, typically we'll find ourselves in one of two positions, an insider or an outsider. Sometimes we wrongly do that in our own churches. We label them the outside and we label us the inside. But somehow, some way, we have to make people on the outside feel welcome on the inside, that they can be a part of the community of people who know and love Jesus as king. I read something when I was preparing the study. It said, To all who need comfort, to all who want friendship, to those who desire acceptance, to all who want sheltering love, to those who sin and need a savior, and whosoever will come, this church opens wide its doors 
and in the name of our Lord says, welcome. When you are in the ministry of rejection and suffering, there's going to be a time when you're going to need somebody to stand by you. But the truth is God might be preparing you to stand with someone who needs you. There's a whole lot more, and we have to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we continue our study in the life and times of David, as we see David (laughs) rejected, Lord, as we see the rebellion of the prince, Lord, as we see the reaction of the people, Lord, we know that when our king was rejected, there's always a prince who wants to take his place. Sadly, the greatest rebellion takes place inside of our own heart. Lord, we want so much to be able to identify with David. But sadly, some of us must, if we're going to be honest, identify with Absalom. Lord, we have no right to replace Jesus on the throne. Lord, we have no right to occupy the place that he rightly deserves. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, we pray, we pray, Lord, that if we find ourselves in a, in a situation where we want to be in control and we want to be the king and we want to exercise the power and we want to make the decisions and we want to exercise the justice, that, Lord, we admit that we're not wise enough or good enough to be the king, that there's a reason why all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and earth. There's a reason why, why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because no one else is as wise as him and no one else is as good as him and no one else loves like him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.